3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're tuned into Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is just past 7 in the morning. Good morning, Carly. Good morning, Rosie. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, Rosie. Good morning, both of you. (laughs) (laughs) How are we doing today? Um, I'm calling it. I'm saying that it, it is officially winter. Um, I'm sitting here in the 3CR studio in my really large um, parka. So, yeah, first time that I've had to pull this out this year. I know what you're talking about. It's fine. I think it's perfect uh, riding weather. Rosie, would you agree or are you just going to... I mean, the coffee guy this morning was like, it's not even cold. You don't even need gloves, so I don't know. <laughs> coffee guy and I have been uh, arguing about who's going to get frostbite on our hands first because we are resistant to getting gloves. Um, stay tuned uh, for that. I'm sure, I'm sure you're all waiting for updates on that. Um, but no, apart from that, it has been a really, really heavy news week. Um, mm. Just trying to bring some levity in because, you know, that's the sort of thing that keeps us, keeps us going while we fight this. Um, but yeah, um, maybe we'll jump into some of the stuff that we've got on today. Um, so first up, I'm going to be speaking with anti-poverty activist Kristen O'Connell, who's joining us to give us a, a rundown of the federal budget 2021 with a focus on social security. And uh, for people that are interested in attending a, a uh, an event that is a post-budget rundown uh, led by uh, unemployed workers on the budget... Um, there is an event run by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union called Their Budget, Our Lives. So you can look that up on Eventbrite, and that is this evening. Um, so I encourage people to look that up, and we'll be plugging that later in the show as well. Um, and next, uh, we are going to uh, – we were going to have uh, Janine Kalek on, who is – a Palestinian activist who is based in Sydney. Um, unfortunately, Janine's not able to uh, join us today, and it, it is an incredibly difficult time, and I just want to shout out to all the incredible, especially Palestinian women who have been doing so much organizing, so much of the media appearances, keeping things going, writing petitions, organizing rallies. Um, so we are going to be playing a segment from Tuesday Breakfast, 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast, where Evie interviewed Janine Harani, who's a Palestinian advocate, campaigner, and educator, um, about what is happening uh, in Sheikh Jarrah and a little bit of the history of Nakba Day as well, which is coming up on this Saturday, the 15th. Yeah. And then I'm going to speak with Elle Gibbs, who's a disability advocate and an award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues. And Elle joined us a few weeks ago on Thursday breakfast, and we're following up that conversation um, about the NDIS uh, with a look at the NDIS in relation to the budget and other disability um, services following, yeah, the release of the budget on Tuesday. 
And then lastly, we're going to get Milima May from Uprising of the People to join us on the line to speak about the very newly amended Northern Territory Youth Justice Legislation. So, um, yeah, there's been amendments to the Youth Justice Act and the Bail Act in the Northern Territory where police are now given more powers um, to place electronic monitoring on young offenders and they're also going to be able to breath test young people without an adult guardian present as well as there's going to be um, a reverse of, uh, I guess, the bail um, where now serious offending whilst on bail or breaching bail conditions, um, young people will be taken into custody unless there's an exceptional circumstance. So really we're seeing a reverse of the recommendations um, that were you know, given um, in regards to what was happening in Dondale and um, yeah, that Royal Commission that happened a few years ago and a lot of these bail laws were relaxed um, after the atrocities that really came out of um, that Royal Commission into the Dondale Youth Detention Centre. But now we're just seeing the Northern Territory Labor government actually um, yeah, hardening down on youth justice crime. Yeah, I feel like we are seeing... Um, such a sort of trend, you know, whether it be through the, the federal budget and what, uh, what's been announced there in terms of military um, spending um, or whether it be what's happening in the state of Victoria and increased investment in police and prisons, um, you know, a real law and order turn that is linked into um, the idea that this is essential for pandemic recovery as well, which is something to keep an eye on and really concerning. Mm. I'm just really concerned um, because, I mean, we saw similar bail laws be introduced in Queensland. So, I mean, Queensland, Northern Territory, I mean, which state's going to follow? Mm. Yeah, it is something to watch and we'll keep you updated on that. Mm, absolutely. Um, so maybe let's go to a track now. Uh, this one is by Dam. Uh, it's called Mali Hooray, I Don't Have Freedom. I'm 
اطفال العالم الحرة دايما ضل بتدعج للحياة المرة قوة نشاطين بتبهرج الكلام كلهم ماخدين تخرج بتعرج الاوطان واحنا نستعمل قوة عشان الضعف بنتحمل الموت عشان الحياة عملنا بلطف ومش بعصف للحياة ولادنا ولما لقيناها مش بايدينا جربنا نفقدها فموتنا وكل اللي طلبناه كان نفس واللي ضحينا عشانه برضه كان نفس انت قولي ليش اطفال العالم حرة وانا مالي انا مالي حرية I'm gonna 
Listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and just then we played a couple of tracks. So first up was Malihure, I don't have freedom by Dam, and then just then was Galbi Dari uh, by Zenobia. Yeah, real bangers. Uh, encourage everybody to go list, uh, look these artists up. Mm, Carly, and they're both Palestinian. Yeah, I'm sure artists. Carly will be making a, pl- a playlist, a DJ set based on this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, actually, though. <laughs> we need that, so yes. Yes, please. <laughs> um, because Dam are one of the only um, Palestinian hip-hop acts, and then just then that was a bit more of like a techno beat by Zenobia. So they play some incredible electronic Palestinian music. Stunning. Um, all right, so we might jump into some news headlines now. So this is just being released. Uh, Moderna has, uh, the pharmaceutical company Moderna has said that it has signed a deal with the Australian government to supply Australia with 25 million doses of the Moderna COVID vaccine. Now, this hasn't been formally endorsed by the federal government, but this was announced in a press release overnight by Moderna. And the company says that uh, 10 million doses could arrive in Australia by the end of the year and a further 15 million in 2020. 22. And at the moment, uh, the current, uh, currently the only available vaccines that are locally manufactured in Australia are AstraZeneca and Pfizer. And Moderna is set to join this group. And the federal government also has an agreement with Novavax, but is currently waiting on regulatory approvals for that. So keep an eye on that. And um, as you know, and as we've discussed with L. Gibbs, there's been a lot of issues with the vaccine rollout. Um, but potentially, you know, having Moderna on board as well might, um, I don't know, assist people to have more options, speed things up. But we do know as well that, you know, in GP clinics around the country, um, you know, vaccines are just not able to get out. Um, there have been issues with making appointments. So definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah, Um And I mean, yes, some more just like shocking news from India. Um, India reported a record of 412,262 new COVID cases earlier this week. Um, So that's a record of 3,980 daily deaths. Um, And a second wave of infections have really just inundated the health system there. Um, And it's spread from into the cities, into the more rural areas. Um, so that's just some, yeah, really, really shocking news. And, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what yeah. to say about it. Yeah, just in, in light of both of those headlines, like just thinking about, you know, what we've kind of brought up before around vaccines and, and which countries, who has access to vaccines. Um, and, you know, well, it's pro- it's great that, you know, maybe more people in Australia will have access to vaccines considering the slow rollout. It's just, yeah, it seems insane that um, countries like India... Yeah. have no access and that like the rates of um, 
vaccination there are just so low. Mm. Yeah, and it's also, you know, this notion of like a global vaccine apartheid. I, I was listening to um, a podcast, the Anti-Empire podcast with Justin Poder, and he recently released an update about the situation in India and was talking about the sort of flow-on effects that we don't really think about. So, um For example, India as a pharmaceutical manufacturing powerhouse, uh, you know, in in non-COVID times um, would would have been supplying a lot of these uh, vaccines to Africa. But now the African continent as well is is suffering Mm -hmm. because um, many countries are not able to access um, vaccines that could have been produced in India during this time. And so there are so many flow on effects that we don't really see. And especially in a in a relatively privileged country that's able to access particular vaccines and then stockpile as well. Um, yeah, so uh, I also wanted to raise the fact that last night um, an excellent special aired on NITV, and uh, it's called We Say No More, which invited a panel of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander experts in family violence to shine a light on the current situation that is disproportionately faced by First Nations peoples. And it was aired directly after the second episode of SBS's groundbreaking documentary, See What You Made Me Do, um, which refers to, I guess, uh, notions of uh, domestic violence and coercive control. But this uh, panel provided a First Nations response to some of those concerns. And so it featured Noongar human rights lawyer, uh, sorry, at See What You Made Me Do features Noongar human rights lawyer and academic uh, Dr. Hannah McGlade. Uh, and this panel uh, included Dr. Vanessa Lee, who's a senior academic in social epidemiology at the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney, Marlene Longbottom, who's also an academic and um, an advocate, Jody Curry, who's the CEO of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Community Health Service Brisbane, Sandra Creamer, who's a lawyer and survivor, and Ashley Donahue, who's the CEO of Mojangal Women's Resource Centre and also a survivor. And... Um, yeah, and Justice Advocates Carly Stanley and Keenan Mundine um, also joined as part of the audience. So if you want to uh, listen back to that, we strongly encourage it. It is really important to hear um, First Nations voices and center First Nations voices when we are talking about, um, you know, these issues of domestic violence and coercive control because a lot of the times uh, carceral responses really just end up criminalizing those who are subject to violence. So uh Look that up um, on NITV and SBS. We say no more. Mm. That's great because, I mean, I think that the people who are really leading that charge at the moment um, for coercive control legislation and I guess um, that really, yeah, like they're all um, white feminists, really, um, and that perspective of First Nations peoples who do experience both, you know, um, state violence and systemic violence and the ongoing um, trauma of colonisation and then also experiencing um, sometimes interpersonal violence, um, yeah, is really missed when white feminists um, try and speak about the uh, responses that are needed to address family and domestic and intimate partner violence. So thank you so much, Priya, for raising that. Yeah, and just to just to clarify for listeners who might be... Um, I don't know, maybe are unfamiliar with the term of white feminist and what that means. It's not necessarily a reference to a uh, skin color per se, but mainly the sort of position that people occupy. So an orientation towards the particular status quo. I mean, a lot of people are white, but you don't Mm. have to be white to be a white feminist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Yeah. So please, please do tune into that. These are the voices that we really need to be listening to um, and that really don't get platformed. And Rosie, finally, we have um, a lovely. Oh, sorry. Oh, I just wanted to raise as well that, um, yeah, Hamas has fired more rockets um, after Israel's destroyed a third Gaza tower. So Israeli army bombs, um, police and security buildings, um, yeah, Gaza authorities are saying that 65 Palestinians have been killed, including 16 children. So I just wanted to give that um, new update before we do hear from um, Janine Janine Harani. Harani. Yeah, may we see a free Palestine in our lifetimes. Yeah, absolutely. And just to end on, uh, you know, a bit of good news, the Koori Mail has turned 30. Um, so the Koori Mail is a fortnightly national Indigenous newspaper. It's 100% Aboriginal owned, 100% self-funded, um, and is has been bringing, you know, um, news, uh, national news about <clears throat> Aboriginal people um, for 30 years to the community. So that's really amazing. Yeah, huge, huge ups to Indigenous um, owned and led media. And also just a little plug for later on. If you are, you know, if you've got nothing to do at around nine o'clock, or even if you do have something to do, but you can listen <laughs> to the radio. Um, um, our, our mate Bo Spearham up at 989 FM um, in Minjin is going to be speaking with Janine Harani, who is um, also going to be, we're going to be playing a segment from Tuesday Breakfast on our show in a little bit, but in a bit more detail um, about what's going on and with some more recent updates about what's going on in um, Palestine right now. Yeah. Definitely tune into that. And also just support any black media that's going on, right, on this continent. So, yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, 98.9, and I'm thinking about also all of the amazing presenters and producers that create shows on 3CR. Um, You know, I'm thinking even of... um, you know, Neil Morris and um, Paul Gorey, their show is still here on 3RRR. <laughs> so, yeah, just support all black content that's being created on this continent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's usually the only way that so many of these critical conversations get platformed. And now I think we should go to a track. So this one is by Bashar Murad, Mashakara. Yeah. 
Salam Habibi. Salam Habibi. This is Marushti and Luqman from Salam Radio Show. Tune in on Sundays from 4 till 5 p.m. on 3CR for some modern Arabic mazika. Salam Radio Show will be bringing you every week a search of new, modern and reinterpreted sounds of Arabic mazika ranging from trap, rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, experimental, ambient and electronic music. Yalla habaybna. Shunatrin. Join us every Sunday on Salam Radio Show. Mainstreaming Arabic Mazika. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast and that track that we just heard before was Mascara by Bashar Murad. And now we're going to go to an interview with anti-poverty activist Kristen O'Connell who's going to take us through some of the social security related concerns with the federal budget which was handed down on Tuesday. So hey Kristen, um, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Thank you for having me again, Priya. No worries at all. Thank you for, you know, just being a, a staunch, frequent guest who's able to take us through some of the complexities of Social Security policy and funding, because I know that a lot of this can be so challenging to parse. Yeah, that's right. And I think they do that on purpose, you know, to make it really hard for people to understand what's happening to them and what's happening to everyone else. Oh, 100%. Um, so the 2021-22 federal budget was handed down on Tuesday night, and it looks like more of the same austerity measures regarding Social Security, while big business, the military, and extractive industries win out. Um, so can you take us through some of the key concerns for unemployed and underemployed workers in the budget, as well as newly arrived residents? Because I know there's some Social Security-related um, stuff there, too. Yeah, absolutely. And so obviously um, for everyone who's on payments, the biggest concern is still that we're so far below the poverty line and that particularly because the government um, very cleverly introduced our austerity package a month ago, the media largely is ignoring this. And so, you know, there's been a lot of congratulations for the government uh, not putting in an austerity budget. It's just that they've done it by stealth. So everybody's still struggling in poverty. We've seen some really, um, some really big changes to the way that what we call mutual obligations is going to work. Those things aren't brand new. We knew they were coming, but it is going to see a lot of money taken out of employment services. Um, we, when what we've been seeing from unemployed people for a long time is we've been asking, please do something to make meaningful employment services. And that money could have been invested to give people what they've asked for, but instead they've taken it out at a time when there are more unemployed people mm. than ever before. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of different... Um, ways in which the government is seeking to divide people and hurt us differently. So as you said, the like as you mentioned, the migrant, um, so there'll be a rule for migrants. New migrants won't be able to access any social security for four years now. And, you know, obviously we, we demand, as one of our demands is that every single person in this country who needs support should have access to it because our visa status, the type of work we do, um, nothing about our life actually means that we don't need to eat or have a home um, or have any of the other basics that we need money to survive. Um, we did also see, you know, a lot of these announcements around mental health and 
uh, women's budget and all these things. But we know that all of those problems uh, have underlying them really large groups of people who are being harmed by the social security system. So we know that mental health investment is putting a Band-Aid on a problem that the government is creating for unemployed people. Um, talking about closing the gap is absolutely ludicrous when we've got people being subjected to cashless welfare. Uh, there has been a change for people who are in remote communities. Um, the Community Development Program, which is very racist, about 80% of participants are Indigenous, um, is going to be changed. Uh, we have no faith uh, or trust in the government to do that in a way that actually helps people, but they have talked about suspending some mutual obligations for folks in the interim. So we, we obviously hope that that will happen immediately and we'll be campaigning to do that. And I've really mm -hmm. barely touched the surface there. There's more money for debt recovery, so lots and lots of really cooked things, um, but they've split it up in a way that makes it hard to track and, and hard for the media to pay attention. Yeah, and actually on that... Um there's something quite interesting about the community development program changes as well because um, we see this happening at the same time as the cashless debit card is being rolled out across the Northern Territory. So really, you know, how are these programs going to articulate with one another? There's, there's not a lot of clarity there. That's right. And one of the problems we know, um, and you know very well, is that things like the cashless welfare card and the community development program ultimately mean that the income support system is so difficult for people to deal with and to navigate, and they have so such little access to support from Centrelink that people end up dropping out of the system altogether, which then increases the burden uh, on their families and communities more broadly because there's even less money to go around in those local economies. Um, so the Community Development Program and Cashless Welfare Card um, are, you know, can interact together in really horrific ways. Individually, they're terrible. Um, so it is good to see some change, but, uh, yeah, very nervous to see what the details are going to be on that. Yeah, um, and I'm sure we'll be able to keep people updated about what's happening in that space as well. Um, so what about this new employment services model? Because, you know, I know government loves coming up with snappy new names for uh, mutual obligations, but what does this mean for job seekers and how does it compound some pre-existing concerns around this fraught system? Yeah, well, the government has a habit of, you know, designing employment services to last, you know, a five-year program and then changing it every five years. Uh, so it's seemingly arbitrary. Uh, one of the reasons, I guess, they do continue with that sort of five-year cycle is because they never seem to make anything better and so they need to continue changing it. But this new employment services model was something that was in the works before COVID. Um, it is going to uh, do a bunch of things that really worry us. The first thing is that it will divide people into um, even more distinct categories. So we already, you know, label people as stream A, B and C, and that's based on some assessment of whether you're employable or not, um, which is, you know, disgusting in and of itself. But this is going to make it worse. You're going to have to engage with a digital platform, which for many people is quite difficult if you have a lower education level, not great digital literacy, you're in internet poverty, or you don't have access to a device. Um, an, an electronic device that would allow you to do this process, you're straight away going to be struggling to get any access uh, to income support at all. If you get through that process, an algorithm is going to determine uh, what sort of needs you have. Uh, for people who are deemed to be very employable, they will not be referred to a job agency, and that is literally the only tiny silver lining we can find in this. It means that you will actually be uh, self-managing um, through an online platform. Um, so, you know, 
that's not great. Lots of people do actually want some meaningful support while they're unemployed. Things like, you know, actual useful help doing things like their resume, getting some small training. Those things are supposed to exist in the system now, but they're not delivered in any way that actually helps people. For people who are determined to not be employable, they're going to be referred to job agencies. We know that job agencies are dangerous um, for people to interact with. There's bullying, there's lying, there's threats. People are forced into unsafe workplaces, they're forced into unsafe work for the Dole program. None of that is going to change. What is going to change is the amount of money that job agencies get per person, and that's going to go up. So on the surface, this looks like it's uh, you know, a really good win. Um, certainly lots of journalists I've been speaking to kind of assumed that I would love this. Um, however, there's lots of different problems with it. Um, we're going to see this new point system introduced. We're calling them the poverty uh, performance indicators where, you know, you're really just being forced to come up with these arbitrary activities that mm. if you can't fulfil them, you're going to get in trouble. Uh, again, we've got this problem with you have to apply for 20 jobs and those 20 jobs must be suitable, and if they're not suitable, you will be penalised. But, of course, if you don't apply for 20 jobs and there aren't 20 suitable jobs, you'll also be penalised. Mm. Yeah, it really doesn't uh, It doesn't move away from the whole idea of individualised responsibility, um, which, you no. know, obviously doesn't take into account... Well, job creation. Yeah. <laughs> so many systemic uh, concerns around whether people are able to actually access, um, you know, decent um, and well-paid or fairly paid even work. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. yeah. There's so many jobs at the moment. We've been um, involved with the job security inquiry and obviously we're hearing endless stories from people who are receiving poverty wages from their waged job and poverty wages from their in- income support payment and those two poverty payments together do not add up to being out of poverty. So, yes, it's not... And those people still have mutual obligations and they will still continue to have mutual obligations under this new model. So nothing meaningful is changing. Absolutely. Um, and just... I just wanted to touch on... Because I know there's been um, a lot of a lot of chat in the media around, um, you know, the funding for mental health and how this is an important mm-hmm. budget for mental health. But I know you and some other uh, unemployed workers have made some very important um, statements about how it is perverse to talk about mental health uh, when people are kept in poverty conditions. So I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously the union uh, hears from our members in a range of different, um, for a range of different reasons about what's going on in their life, in, in their life and their experience of the social security system. And every single day, myself and other um, activists and advocates within the union and within our movement are hearing that people are having financial distress, anxiety, depression as a result of their unemployment. But on top of that, we have people who are, as I said, being subjected to bullying, people who feel trapped in situations where they're exposed to sexual harassment or sexual violence. The toll on people's mental health is enormous. It is not immeasurable, actually. Nobody is doing the work to measure it, but the pattern that we see suggests it is an extraordinary percentage of people who, if you're in this system for longer than a few months, are suffering severe uh, mental ill health. Mm. That is That translates, there are absolutely people who go from being well to being in the system for a while to developing like chronic and, and long-term um, mental ill health and that then becomes a lifelong challenge for them to manage. It makes people less employable. People are 
are having these health problems because they're unemployed and these health problems are being created by the system, which then mean that it's harder for them to get employed. So it's it's on an enormous scale. This new yeah. system is also going to continue it. And, yeah, the, it's the combination of poverty and mutual obligations together that make it so horrific. But both of those things alone would be causing some of these problems. Absolutely. And it's sort of... You know, it, it compounds into into a vicious cycle that then gets labelled as intergenerational welfare dependence, even though, you know, that phrase doesn't actually mean anything. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And again, you know, another thing with that phrase, it's so problematic, but also it doesn't take into account that maybe um, if it's hard for people to get work where you live in one generation, that might not change overnight. Mm-hmm. And so you might find that, you know, the next generation also is, still high unemployment in the area, which, again, has nothing to do with individuals and whether or not um, they've come from a family that depended on income support. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yourself and Jay Coonan, who's also guested on our show and is an anti-poverty activist as well, put out a brilliant piece in Overland yesterday on the need for an unemployed workers movement. So could you speak to some of the importance of policy analysis and action that is led by unemployed workers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess I'd first just say that at the at the kind of heart of that piece is this idea of the NIRU, which is the so-called natural rate of unemployment. And that is the fact that the government literally plans to have unemployed people. And there is no excuse at any time for forcing anyone to live in poverty, but that makes it particularly untenable and unacceptable. So um, we talked about the fact that, I guess, the system itself is in this place, partly because both sides of politics have made it less and worse, more punitive over time. Dramatic reductions in payments have happened uh, through the Howard government, through the Rudd and Gillard government, and now it's been pretty steadily at half the poverty line during this uh, coalition government. So we've got the fact that people who conventionally and the establishment uh, people who've been advocating um, to change these things don't have any understanding of what our lives are like and so they have very low ambitions and they're very happy to sort of uh, beg for crust and uh, you know be grateful for crumbs is, is how I've been talking about it this week in particular we've seen that from a lot of charities and other groups in the civil society so one of the reasons that we need unemployed workers leading these movements is because we actually understand how important this is what what these experiences of living in the system. Um, Secondly, things are very complex, like I just said, and if you don't actually have exposure to this, you don't understand all those different bits and how they fit together and what matters with that. But we've been um, doing some quite substantive work, I would like to say, on Senate submissions and and feeding into those sorts of parliamentary processes, um, putting out there our analysis of the budget and looking at the totality of what it means for unemployed people, underemployed people, insecure workers, and fundamentally understanding the interaction between unwaged work, unwaged labour and wage labour and how we are being used as a tool to put downward pressure mm. on wages. So, you know, there's a lot in there. But <laughs> that, that piece will not be a standalone piece. There's going to be a few more in a little series with that one. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's important that people understand the material reality of things that they're talking about and basically no one has been doing that until the AEW came along um, and we're going to be uh, doing some more work with a, another new project as well called the Anti-Poverty Centre, which is based on the same principle but looking more at those bigger um, mm. policy uh, and research uh, kind of projects. 
Yeah, and uh, for people wanting to read that piece, it's called Bad and Getting Worse, Why We Need an Unemployed Workers Movement by Kristen O'Connell and Jay Coonan. So you can look that up on Overland. That's free to read. Um, so uh, maybe moving towards um, the the election that, that is looming, but, you know, when will it be? How do you see the current level of political courage or will to sort of provide alternatives to the status quo in social security policy? There has been no political courage at all of any kind. I guess it takes a bit of courage to tell millions of people that they should be accepting living in poverty. So that's a form of courage. Um, We have seen, obviously, uh, failures from the Labor Party for a very long time. Um, We were very relieved to see the Greens shift last year in response to our demand uh, for income support above the poverty line and for abolishing mutual obligations to change their policies to reflect our demands. But they also have failed to make this a central issue. So there is no one at the moment who has managed to make poverty and social security the key issue um, that may build that up to be a central central part of an election campaign. And we think that is crucial because, firstly, as I said, there are millions of people living in this situation. If you could actually provide people some hope, you may actually have a real you may actually have a real chance of kind of winning. Which at the moment it doesn't feel like the Labor Party does have a chance of winning. Um, we just need to see some commitments from political parties to say this is what you will be voting for or against. We don't expect the coalition to be making any change to payment rates. They don't. They haven't announced that, but we can be pretty confident. We know where the Greens stand. They are looking at the Henderson poverty line. We don't know where Labor stands. We need to see something from them so that we mm-hmm. can actually talk to all of our members, talk to people who are on income support and say, it is worth fighting for this. It is worth going out of your comfort zone. It is worth building solidarity in your community and putting pressure Um, on the politicians, talking to others and getting them to vote for something that will help you in your life. But at the moment, there's nothing to give people the motivation to do that. And that's what we need to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And people, I guess this this sort of leads into my last question, which is where can people find out more about the budget event tonight and how people can support or get involved in unemployed workers organizing? Because really, you know, um, while there's this sort of the the politics of hope around um, around social security payments and and the hope that things will get better is used as a political football. Really, the the work is happening on the ground and people can get involved in that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, We are holding a reply, a budget reply event tonight, uh, and it is not going to be talking about abstract numbers uh, or, you know, analysing who won or lost. We know we lost, so we're going to be talking about what the changes will mean for people in their life. We will be hearing... Um, from a range of folks who are being absolutely done over by these types of decisions in the budget, talking about what it actually means to live with these sorts of decisions. And then we're going to be talking... Um, so we're here in Canberra. We're going to have an in-person event in Canberra and we'll be online as well. Um, in Canberra, we'll be talking about what sort of mutual aid programs actually exist in Canberra, where the gaps are and what the community here can do to provide the services that are currently not being provided by the federal government, the support that people need to survive while these policies are in place. So really quite literally and directly intervening to make sure that as much as possible people are cared for and protected until we win the political change that we need. Um, So in terms of people getting involved, you can go to the Australian Unemployed Workers Union Facebook page. Uh, there is an event uh, pinned post there. You can RSVP uh, using the Eventbrite and you'll either get the link 
um, to the live stream when we put it up. Uh, or if you could come along in Canberra, we'd absolutely love to see people. I know that probably not many folks uh, who are listening to 3CR are in Canberra at the moment. Um, we really want it to be a welcoming and inclusive space, though. So we've made sure that there's going to be food and drinks for everyone who wants it, and that is completely free because we know that when we're living on these payments, we cannot often afford to go out and do social activities. So we want make, to make sure that people feel welcome and comfortable. Um, in terms of supporting the movement in an ongoing way, I think right now what what would be the most powerful is for people to listen to us, and that is part of what we're doing tonight, is asking people to listen to us. But it also means when we see um, totally disingenuous and harmful coverage in the mainstream media that everyone stands up and says, no, this is not okay, these are lies. It means that mm. when we are seeing commentary from groups that don't really understand our lives, that people are putting pressure to say, no, you need to hear from the people who are actually affected by this. Um, often I am contacted by journalists asking me to find them someone to speak to. Mm. And I always say, very happy to help you with that. We also think that you should have us comment as people who are doing both living in the system and doing the policy work mm -hmm. and understand at a broader level what's going on. And vast majority of times, no, no, we just want to speak to an individual and they are atomizing this problem yeah. and making it about that individual experience when we can provide information about what the big problems are and what needs to change. Yeah. That is very difficult for a person who's trying to survive in the system to actually be across. So there's lots people can do, but I would say at the moment it's about making sure we're heard, you're listening, and making sure that those who are covering our stories are actually doing it from the perspective of, of expertise that we have. Absolutely. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about this and really encourage people to look up their budget, our lives on Eventbrite, where you can find more information about the event and check out the Australian Unemployed Workers Union as well. Great. Thank you so much, Priya. And that was an interview with Kristen O'Connell, who's an anti-poverty activist and who joined us to give us a rundown of the federal budget 2021-22 with a focus on social security. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is just coming up to 747 in the morning. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery, and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And just before we go into our next interview, I just wanted to update listeners um, on reports coming out of um, Palestine around, you know, mob violence, um, settler violence and lynchings of Palestinians. It's really distressing news, but across Palestine in Haifa, Akka, Lid, Yaffa, but Yam, there's just been many reports of um, Israeli settlers backed by police and government, or at least, you know, ignore the violence has been completely ignored by the state and just these kind of horrific acts of beating um horrible chance it's it's pretty distressing and yeah again just um like carly said of, of course in gaza there's also been airstrikes and um since that bombing began a few days ago 65 
Palestinians have died and 16, including 16 children with, you know, 300 plus people being wounded. So this ongoing violence is really truly distressing. So um, up next, we have Evie from Tuesday Breakfast um, interviewing Janine Harani about what's been happening um, in Palestine, in Sheikh Jarrah specifically. And Janine Harani is a Palestinian advocate, campaigner and educator who arrived in Australia as a stateless Palestinian refugee in 1997. She is currently the director of Road to Refuge, an organisation that aims to change the narrative around refugees and people seeking asylum by transferring the power of narrative back to those who are most directly affected. So now we'll go into that interview with Janine Hurani from Tuesday Breakfast. This morning uh, we've got a very special interview coming up. Uh, we're going to be talking to Janine Hurani, who is a Palestinian advocate, campaigner and educator who arrived in Australia as a stateless Palestinian refugee in 1997. She's currently the director of Road to Refuge, an organisation that aims to change the narrative around refugees and people seeking asylum by transferring the power of narrative back to those who are most directly impacted. Janine's joining us this morning on Tuesday Breakfast to speak about what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah. Thank you so much, Janine, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, the fight to allow Palestinians to rightfully claim Sheikh Jarrah is, as their home is, isn't new. Um, legal claims from Jewish settler organisations have continued since the 70s. So the latest escalation that's happening at the moment is to do with the attempted forced expulsion of four families. Uh, they've sought refuge there since the 1948 Nabka. Can you explain what's happening this week? Yeah, sure. So Sheikh Razah is a neighbourhood in occupied East Jerusalem. Um, and when I say occupied, what I mean is that under international law, the land belongs to the Palestinian territories, but Israel is illegally occupying it and so has full control over the land. Um, and so Israel is allowing Israeli settlers to steal Palestinian homes in Sheikh Shazah. What that means is that Israeli settlers are physically entering the homes of Palestinians who've lived there for decades um, and essentially kicking them out and taking over their homes themselves. In response to these evictions, um, hundreds of Palestinians began peacefully protesting in the streets of Sheikh Nazar, um, and Israeli settlers responded to this with violence, which is backed by Israeli police. Um, and now, as I'm sure you've seen, this has expanded in Al-Aqsa Mosque during the holy month of Ramadan. Um, while Palestinians have been praying, they've been trapped inside the mosque while tear gas is thrown into the mosque. Um, there's been police brutality inside the mosque and the mosque compound. Um, Palestinians are carrying bodies out of the mosque um, using prayer mats as stretchers. So it really has um, taken a really brutal and violent turn. Um, this morning I woke up to the news that 21 Palestinians were murdered in Gaza by Israeli airstrikes and 15 of those were children. So, um, you know, I heard a story of, of one of those children this morning who was a little girl who was returning home from buying her outfit for Eid, which is um, one of our two major religious holidays, and it's, it's on Thursday. Um, and I think about the fact that a few years ago, um, Palestine National Day coincided with airstrikes in Gaza. You know, the move of the US embassy to Tel Aviv, uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in December 2017, happened days before Christmas. Um, Ahmed Arakat was killed at a checkpoint in 2020 on his sister's wedding day. You know, our celebrations are turned into funerals, memorials and protests. And so even though I mentioned this idea of land before when I was defining occupied, this is about so much more than land. It's about human rights, human life and human dignity. Um, and like you said, Edie, the Nakba, um, which translates to the catastrophe in English, um, occurred in 1948. And, and this has been ongoing. So um, in 1948, 
more than 700,000 Palestinian refugees, including my grandparents, were expelled from their homes. And what's happening, uh, what happened then is not unlike what's happening right now in Sheikh Shazah, which really goes to show that the Nakba is ongoing and what's happening in Sheikh Shazah is just the most recent manifestation of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a continuation of the violence against Palestinians um, that uh, continues um, to this day. And there, there's a mass social media campaign at the moment uh, to draw attention to the plight of Sheikh Jarrah. So there's the hashtag Save Sheikh Jarrah that I noticed in your handle and um, a lot of people's handles at the moment. It's being widely used across all of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook to try and educate people both in, you know, in other countries, overseas, and about the escalation in the crisis. But um, this has come with its own hurdles, uh, from automated censorship and removal of pro-Palestinian content. Um, the, sorry, the Israeli government have also themselves said that um, they've confirmed that major social platforms are complying to requests to delete uh, information as well. Uh, has this been something that you've experienced or that your friends have experienced as well? Not me personally, but I know that a lot of people um, posts have been have been deleted. Um, and you know, the maintenance and expansion of the state of Israel relies on the erasure and the silencing of Palestinian lives and stories, and the destruction of our homes and villages. So I'm not surprised that our voices um, are being silenced. That's not really um, anything new. But at the same time, what we're doing is working. You know, the Israeli Supreme Court postpone the eviction um, for 30 more days, and that's because of the local and international outcry that has been so effective and, and has been kind of spearheaded on social media. And so I guess my message to everyone is to maintain the rage because the protesting and the hashtagging and, and all of this is working, and it's important that we maintain the momentum because it's not over yet, and this doesn't start or end with Sheikh Shazah, as I mentioned yeah, and I know that a lot of the workload has been with you and other Palestinian activists to try and get the message out there. What's the best thing that uh, allies to the Palestinian cause and supporters can do to get the message out there? I think first and foremost, the most important thing is to amplify Palestinian voices. And when I say that, I mean, you know, there are so many um, Instagram and Twitter accounts with people on the ground in Sheikh Jarrah. And so I'm um, following those accounts and sharing the content that they're asking us to share. Um, BDS Australia and the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network released um, some content on social media as a guide to supporting Sheikh Sozah from the Australian colony. Um, and so people can access those two social media platforms um, and read up on how they can support Sheikh Sozah from this continent. Um, I also want to kind of um, bring light to the fact that the West, in particular the USA and Australia, are complicit in what is happening. Um, the USA gives Israel $3.8 billion in aid every single year. And um, the Australian government has in the past had billion-dollar contracts with Elbert Systems, um, and the Victorian state government ha currently has a $6 million contract with them. And Elbert Systems is a defence electronics company that actually tests its weapons on Palestinian children. Um, and so the Australian government has this long history of enabling and supporting Israel and its violent settler colonial endeavours and supporting the illegal occupation. So there's a responsibility for us here to put pressure on our Australian on, on the Australian government to, um, you know, sanction and divest from um, these companies and its complicitness in what's happening. So following on from that, uh, one thing that has really emerged in recent days, and it's been an ongoing problem in Australia for, you know, 
decades is the complete absence of coverage in mainstream and independent news of any coverage that's specifically critical of Israel or even recognises the forcible occupation of Palestine. I always find that it's usually described in very vague terms, like they, they always say there's no easy answers or it's a complicated situation and always trying to sort of fence it a little bit um, and never really um, acknowledging the aggressors in the situation correctly. Um, so I, I've noticed, obviously, there's uh, recent experiences with this. A lot of um, Palestinian activists and their allies have pointed out that our national broadcaster has been quite remiss in actually um, talking about what's happening. Um, so yeah. what's happening now in terms of encouraging um, news outlets to talk about this? Well, I mean, the news outlets um, across the country have been um, really, really silent on this issue. And, it's you know, it's not good enough. It's not um, accurate reporting. And um, actually, currently, as we speak, there's a protest outside ABC in Sydney um, to try and get um, the ABC to, to increase their coverage of, um, of what's happening. I'd also say that, you know, social media is a double-edged sword um, in a lot of ways, but the advantage of social media is that people on the ground, people who normally are not given access to platforms to have their stories shared and heard and have been actively silenced by the media in the past, are given opportunities to share their stories and to share what's happening. And so I would encourage people to um, to make sure that they're getting an accurate picture and to kind of yeah follow the accounts that I mentioned to make sure that you know the um, the real reporting from on the ground is um, is being received. In response to your point about how, um, you know, a lot of people say that it's really complicated, you know, it's a really people talk about how long the inverted commas conflict has been going on um, and how complicated it is. Um, and, yeah, I just kind of want to note that um, it's not complicated. Um, Israel maintains a regime of settler colonialism, of apartheid, of ethnic cleansing and of occupation. And none of these concepts are new concepts. They've all occurred throughout history. You know, we all know... Um, what settler colonialism looks like. We live in a settler colonial state here in so-called Australia. Um, we're all aware of apartheid South Africa and what happened there and the anti-apartheid movement. Um, and so it's really important that we um, draw light to the fact that the Palestinian struggle is not unique and it is a manifestation of things that have occurred and enabled throughout history. Um, and, you know, drawing parallels between the different struggles um, doesn't only shed light on the commonality of, of our different movements, but also shows that as Palestinians ourselves, our freedom and liberation is inherently intertwined with the freedom and liberation of so many other movements around the world. So um, there's a big and growing um, black Palestinian solidarity movement here um, in so-called Australia around First Nations justice and acknowledging um, our shared, settler, shared struggle against settler colonialism. There's a big movement in the US um, around Black Lives Matter and... and um, drawing parallels and solidarity between black American communities and Palestinian communities. Um, actually, the training of many police forces in the U.S. were actually trained by the Israeli military. And so this police brutality and the militarization of the police is something that um, is, you know, we have a common um, fight against. Um, and similarly, you know, what's happening in East Turkestan, what's happening in Kashmir, this is cultural erasure and ethnic cleansing, and this is happening um, in different kind of versions all around the world, and it's important to draw parallels between um, our shared struggles and, and these different movements. 
Yeah, you mentioned the um, SNAP solidarity action that's happening at the moment yeah. in Sydney. Uh, so that's happening at 8.30, so within the next 10 minutes. Um, yeah. Um, and that's basically to bring att- draw attention to the fact that the ABC is not adequately talking at all about what's happening um, in terms of Israeli atrocities and to give light and voice to Palestinian people um, about what's happening on the ground. Yeah. And there's also in the resource that I mentioned that's been shared by APAN, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, and BDS Australia, there's also um, some events to attend. So there's um, protests and rallies happening across the country, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Brisbane, Hobart and Perth. So if you head to um, those social media posts, you can find out what's happening in your city um, and turn up and show solidarity with, with Palestinians. You can also um, make a complaint on the ABC's website and other news outlets as well in their complaints forms and urging them to cover the atrocities. Uh, there's also a survey that we've just retweeted on the 3CR Breakfast account. Um, to It's a petition to um, draw attention again to the ABC to um, allow better coverage um, of Palestine generally as well as what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah. Thank you so much for speaking Thanks, to us today, Janine. And that was an interview from this week's Tuesday Breakfast program where Evie spoke with Janine Harani about what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah. And Janine Harani is a Palestinian advocate, campaigner and educator. And um, just to encourage people to stay on top of this, to keep boosting Palestinian voices. And there's an emergency rally for Palestine in Narm. Um, 73 years of Nakba, protect Al-Aqsa, no to Zionist ethnic cleansing, and save Sheikh Jarrah and end the siege on Gaza. That is this Saturday, the 15th of May at 1 p.m. at the State Library of Victoria, and then also next Saturday, the 22nd of May at 1 p.m. at the State Library of Victoria. And APAN for Palestine um, on uh, social media, on Instagram, and I think on Twitter as well, has put out a template for you to write to your local members and raise the issue with them as well. And uh, now we're going to go to an interview with Elle Gibbs. So I'll throw to Rosie. So Elle Gibbs is a disability advocate and award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues. And Elle's joining us to continue our discussion of the NDIS and also look at uh, mental health services following the release of the federal budget on Tuesday. Good morning, Elle. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us again. So um, the budget contained cost projections for the NDIS um, with a scheme forecast to cost $30 billion in the year 2024-25. And the government's been framing this both as a huge cost blowout and also claiming that they will fully fund the scheme. I just wanted to ask you what these numbers really mean and uh, whether whether this funding claim is true um, in the context of the proposed reforms we spoke about a few weeks ago. Sure. So I think both are true. Well, it's really good to see that they're actually funding the NDIS properly and uh, committing the amount of funds that were projected the NDIS was going to cost. So when the Productivity Commission did a review of the NDIS costs in 2017, not known for their wild claims, Productivity Commission, um, they said that by 2023 the NDIS was going to cost around $30 billion. So things are pretty much right on track Uh And the framing around this as disabled people being burdens, being terrible, is really hard and really difficult to listen to and to um, have uh, happening because we're not seeing that in other areas of the budget. So um, 
there is often record spending trumpeted on roads or submarines, uh, but when it comes to us, uh, we're only seen as a cost and a burden. So um, I think it's really challenging to have the essential supports that we use uh, always being framed as, you know, not necessarily affordable or needing to be sustainable. Absolutely, and I, I know that we touched on that last time we spoke, but, yeah, this rhetoric about sustainability and exactly like you saying, as, as if um, these are just costs rather than actually essential services um, for really valuable and important members of our community. Um, so could you just tell us about the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission? I believe there has been some funding cuts to that in, included in the budget. There has indeed. Uh, so this is the NDIS regulator, so they're kind of the, the people who oversee um, all the services that people who use NDIS supports use um, and uh, have had some fairly, you know, not, not uh, fairly well-publicised, uh, I won't say failures, but, um, you know, because they're an agency that doesn't have enough funding, basically, and they haven't been able to investigate complaints um, and they're responsible for things like investigating violence and abuse against disabled people. Um, so they've had, of course, an $8 million funding cut and had eight staff positions cut, um, which is incredibly concerning. Like, at the same time, we've got the Royal Commission, which is, we'll get to in a sec, um, you know, uncovering the scale of violence and abuse against people with disability, you know. Um, but, yes, we won't, we won't give the regulator enough uh, funds to actually do their job. Totally, and I have seen, yeah, some things on Twitter and things like that. People quite distressed about this. That actually, like, yeah, there needs to be that regulator for, and recourse for people to, um, uh, you know, disclose and make complaints about failures, abuse and um, neglect. So it's really distressing. I did see that there was um, $9.3 million over three years included in the budget to address violence against women with disabilities. Could you just tell us about... Um, uh, sorry, where this money is going and whether you consider this um, adequate considering, yeah, what has come to light with the Disability Royal mm. Commission? It's a good down payment. Um, I think it was really the, for the first time in the women's budget, um, so-called, there was actually mention of some of the very specific violence against women and girls with disability, like forced sterilisation. Um, so that was really kind of amazing. Uh, so this is really good. This is going to go to do things like um, resources and accessible resources, as well as starting to think about some of the more um, structural stuff around accessibility. So I don't have any clues where it's going, I'm afraid, um, but I really hope that Women with Disabilities Australia, which is the, the Disabled People's Organisation for Women and Girls with Disability, um, is going to get the lion's share of that money. Great, thank you. Um, so the federal budget also included $2.3 billion for mental health services, including for suicide prevention, for new headspace clinics um, and, you know, other resources. We, earlier we spoke today with Kristen O'Connell about how poverty um, and experiences of living in the social services system kind of intersect with mental health and other chronic conditions. I was just wondering about, you know, looking at this funding for mental health, could you talk a bit about what the funding is and... Um, I guess the government's approach to mental health and how they're looking at funding it and whether you think it's you know, adequate to consider all of the social impacts on mental health as well. Mm. Look, I think that's such a really good point. Like this, We know that what are called the social determinants of health have an enormous impact on all parts of our health, particularly on mental health. Um, there's been this known kind of gap in 
um, mental health funding. So there is some funding available for people who are having, you know, uh, and I won't call them minor because it's not true, but having um, kind of issues that can be dealt with with a few counselling sessions and that kind of stuff. And then there's the other end, which is people who need inpatient hospitalisation or that kind of stuff. And the missing, that's called the missing middle, which is people who have more serious um, mental health needs, need longer-term, more intensive um, resources and treatment, and there's just not much there um, unless you have lots of money. So mm-hmm. um, so there's a little bit going to, to that, which is some of the headspace-type centres for people over 25, which are going to kind of be the one-stop shop, which is a good thing. Um, and I haven't seen, but I haven't seen some of the recommendations that came out of the Victorian Mental Health Commission, which was a major emphasis on peer workers. So um, actually using people who have, you know, survived the mental health system, people who, um, you know, live with mental mental illness actually as experienced, uh, well-resourced peer workers, um, which is what's been found to be one of the most effective resources. So um, there always, and there also needs to be significant money going into community mental health services rather than always into the kind of carceral logic of... Um, you know, locking people up into uh, into hospitals. Yeah, I think it's so hard with um, these big kind of budget moments where everything's about how much money is going where and it can be really difficult to actually understand um, and hear, you know, the voices of uh, people living with disability or chronic conditions or mental health conditions and also, you know, advocates in that space and people who know what actually works amongst all of the numbers. So thank you so much for outlining those um kind of yeah, areas of community mental health and peer support. They, it sounds like um, hopefully we can see some money going to those areas as well. Um, so unsurprisingly, I guess, given the government, uh, this budget, it just doesn't um, seem to account too much for people, disabled people who are facing intersecting oppressions, you know, including like white supremacy or lack of housing. I'm just wondering if you could speak, I guess, to an intersectional or disability justice approach um, mm. to how you could see, yeah, support and services for disabled folks being imagined slightly differently or vastly oh, differently. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a fabulous question. I, I really love that. I think... Look, I think some of the, the the missing gaps, particularly around something like housing, um, is is really important because housing, um, you know, having affordable, accessible housing that is safe for you, all of that kind of stuff, has such an important um, kind of impact on people's well-being, um, and it impacts directly on you know whether people end up staying in jail, whether people end up um, staying in hospital, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think there needs to be way more emphasis on, um, you know, really pushing for diversion from um, from prison for people with disability, for everyone, but for, pe- for people with disability in particular. So often people with disability end up in prison because they are disabled. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the, the fabulous academics Linda Steele calls is the criminalisation of distress where multiply marginalised disabled people, um, just by being themselves in public, it becomes criminal and becomes criminalised. Um, and I'm not seeing a lot of recognition of some of that stuff. And, you know, all of this talk around the NDIS and um, the way that the independent assessments and all of that kind of stuff, we're not seeing reform that is actually on the table that will help people actually access disability services as opposed to just ending up in prison again. So, um, 
Yeah. And the other big kind of thing that was uh, not in this budget, but that was also not expected, uh, um, was some of the funding that will come around closing the gap. So there is some specific disability-related funding in Closing the Gap that is going to come, that is incredibly important for First Peoples with Disability. So um, that is going to probably come in June or August, and it will be really important to look out for it for that because, you know, what we need is actually change driven by community itself. So um, this needs to be something that is driven uh, very much by the people that it concerns. Thank you. And... Before we finish up, Elle, I was just wondering if there are any other areas of the budget um, that you wanted to speak to. I feel like my questions, you know, my understanding is is also limited. So um, I just wanted to open that up to you, whether there are other areas of the budget or <laughs> government response. What do you mean you haven't read the whole budget, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, look, there are a couple of things. So it was really disappointing to kind of see the first sort of indication of an answer from the government about the extension to the Royal Commission. So it looks like the Disability Royal Commission isn't going to be extended, which is just awful and, you know, really problematic because of COVID. we've had the whole year of year and a bit of COVID and yet the government has said, no, no. So there is no funding in the budget after next, the end of next financial year and the report is still slated, the final report, to come out in April next year. So that is such a disappointment and we're just really hoping that that is not the indication that the government has said no to the extension. I mean, we haven't heard either way. So um, so that, that was something that is worrying. The other big issue that is concerned are the changes for people um, who are on JobSeeker um, mm. and people who are looking for a job who are involved in the disability employment services as well. So there's going to be this huge push to get everyone on using digital services uh, and the so-called people who are disadvantaged are going to get the, the luxury of having the face-to-face stuff. I'm sure Kirsten, Kirsten talked about this. But it's for people with disability, you know, who are 40% of people on JobSeeker, um, it's incredibly concerning. So this push around digital everything um, really disadvantages disabled people and particular communities of disabled people. So, uh, you know, I worry a lot that there are enormous assumptions being made that everyone has a device and everyone has an accessible device, everyone has, you know, plenty of internet speed and capacity and accessing things on a website is really easy for most people to do and that is just not true. So I am concerned about that. Uh, there was a report in The Guardian that this is going to save the government $860 million, so... Yikes. Yeah, thank, thank you so much, Elle. Unfortunately, we are running out of time this morning, but I really appreciate you coming on and sharing, um, yeah, just kind of, you know, digging into some of this for us and really giving us clear explanation on how this is going to affect um, the disability My community. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And that was Elle Gibbs joining us to discuss um, disability services and the NDIS in light of the federal budget released on Tuesday. Elle Gibbs is a disability advocate and an award-winning writer Focus on disability and social issues. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And now we're going to head to another track. This one is by Mashral Lela Cavalry. <laughs> Shabbat shalom, 
Was Cavalry by Mashra Leela. And now joining us on the line is Mil Milma May from Uprising of the People. And she joins us to speak about the newly amended Northern Territory Youth Justice legislation. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. So there has been some newly passed um, legislation. So the Youth Justice Legislation Amendment Act 2021 um, was passed on Tuesday night. Um, I feel like it was a little bit secretive of the Northern Territory Government to pass this quite late on Tuesday. Um, There's been amendments to the Bail Act, um, 1982. So now young people who are accused of serious reoffending whilst on bail um, or breaching bail conditions will be taken into custody unless there are exceptional circumstances. And the way that I've actually read this means that sometimes these... um, these conditions will be um, curfew conditions. So if young people breach a condition of curfew, that could be seen as a serious breach of bail. Um, And then there's also um, fettered throughout this um, Amendment Act, um, uh, I guess the courts and also police relying a lot more on electronic monitoring conditions. Um, Milama, can you um, speak a little bit more about some of these amendments? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, so you're right. On Tuesday, the Northern Territory government passed very um, regressive legislation, we're calling it. Um, you're right with the curfew. So 
the intention of the bills, um, Nicole Madison was quoted to say that there'll be more common sense consequences for repeat offenders and more visibility of youth on bail. And it will make the work of police easier to keep the territory safe. Um, the issues we have with this was one, we're talking about children here. And in the Northern Territory, the age of criminal responsibility is from 10 years old to 17. Um, so when we're talking about children we, and children within the justice system, we are also talking about children that have cognitive disabilities, mental illnesses, diagnoses of FASD. So we're actually talking about children who do not understand the consequences of right and wrong, for starters. So when people are trying to impose conditions on these children, it's actually not going to work in their brains. They have different ways of understanding and consequential learning is not something that a lot of kids with these disabilities can actually compute at this point in time. Um, the harsher curfews, so when they're saying for um, serious breaches, at the, before this legislation was passed, police would have discretion for if a child breached their curfew. So again, we're talking about 10-year-olds to 17-year-olds. Some of the curfews that I've heard children being on are curfews to be home by 4 p.m. So if you're a 12-year-old and it's 4 p.m., and the rest of your friends have gone down to the park to play footy or gone down to the beach or gone to play in some trees and it's getting to 4pm and then you've just looked at your phone or your watch and realised that it's 4pm and you quickly run home but the police have caught you on the way, the police now have the power to lock that child up when they've breached curfew. Mm -hmm. And the curfews that the judges have placed on children in the past have been for example, be home by 4 p.m. The sun is still up at 4 p.m. Like, children are still wanting to play and be outside at 4 p.m. How can this child also participate in sports? How can they participate in their community? So harsher curfews are putting so much control around a child's life, not to mention, like I said before, that these children actually cannot understand consequence and right and wrong. So this penalty of placing a curfew on the child is not actually going to address the root issue of why they might be committing crimes. For electronic monitoring, the whole point of this from the government's end is to make youth who have committed crimes more visible, meaning that mm -hmm. when everyone sees their ankle bracelets, they'll know, oh, this kid's committed crimes before. This means that the police are more likely going to target this child. And again, we're talking from 10-year-olds to 17-year-olds. And if we have more electronic monitoring on them, our kids, their black bodies, because most of the kids in Dondale are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, are being targeted by police, are being surveyed. Um, this is more likely to mean that police or other authorities are going to target our young kids who are already... Um, stuck inside the justice system, so they've already been institutionalised. Uh, these laws that have been passed on Tuesday are just absolutely detrimental to our kids. Mm, yeah, it's, um, 
Yeah, really shocking how quickly they passed. Um, and there's also been amendments to the Youth Justice Act. Um, and so police, yes, they've been given more powers and can now immediately place electronic monitoring on so-called alleged offenders. But they can also now breath test young people without an adult guardian present. Um, so I just wanted to let listeners know about that amendment as well. Yeah, and they have um, said that Oh, I know the opposition leader in the Northern Territory complained that that wasn't harsh enough because it would be too laborious on police to try and get a support person there if a young person um, has needs or needs to be breath tested. So yes, they want to try and breathalyze. They will now have the power to breathalyze children under 18, um, and it's at the discretion of the police officer to decide if they have put enough effort into trying to get a support person there. So you could have a group of 15 or 16-year-olds driving um, and maybe under the influence. And if the police officer thinks that they have done enough to try and get an adult there, um, they can breath test the children without any support person there if they deem that they've done enough work to try and get a support person. Mm. So our children are at mercy of the police in the Northern Territory, which, I mean... Our track record of police treating children and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, yeah, that's scary. It's a very scary. This law is, um, these laws are very scary and also are aggressive from the Royal Commission. Mm, I was about to say that. Yeah. Um, that Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory actually made bail more flexible and increased diversion programs. Um, and... Yeah, can you speak a little bit more about um, Uprising of the People because I know that you've really been campaigning against um, the amendments to this youth justice legislation for quite a while now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Uprising of the People is the organisation that my cousin Shana Ali and I co-founded. So Shana and I are Dungalaba women from the Northern Territory from Gulamurgin, which is now the colony named Darwin. Um, so we're on our land here and Shana and I are supported by other Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people um, in Uprising of the People and we are, have been passionately and adamantly opposing these uh, racist and regressive legislation. So we have social media handles on Facebook and Instagram Uprising of the People, where we share all the information about the legislation and also any other issues happening in the Northern Territory and in Darwin. Um, so for people to, if you have been affected by the story that we're telling you and it doesn't sit right with you of how our children are going to be treated, you can go to our Instagram page or our Facebook and find the links to the petition to stop the bill and also to call Michael Gunner, the Chief Minister, and to email the anti-administrator to try and get them to change or revert the bill. Great. Thank you so much, Malimma, for um, joining us this morning on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. And listeners, I really encourage you to just follow Uprising of the People. Thank you. And just then we heard from Maluma May from Uprising of the People who joined us to speak about the newly amended Northern Territory Youth Justice legislation.
And we are coming up to the end of the show on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. So we'll just uh, give you a reminder to please... um, Please make sure that if you are in Melbourne, you show up to the State Library of Victoria on Saturday at 1 p.m. for Nakba Day and also um, as a, a protest and showing solidarity with Palestinians. Uh, Gaza is under attack. Palestine is under attack. And we need to keep an eye on that. Um, yeah. And uh, shall we just do a very, very quick rundown of what was on the show? Um, so we spoke to Kristen O'Connell, who gave us a social security rundown on the budget. Um, we played Evie on um, interviewing Jean Harani about what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah. El Gibbs uh, spoke with us about disability-related issues in the budget. And Mila Mamey from Uprising of the People spoke with us about the newly amended uh, anti-youth justice legislation. So... Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us this week on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. If you missed uh, anything or you wanted to listen back, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast. And otherwise, we will see you next week. Goodbye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.